Welcome to Live Talk, a weekly radio talk style show exclusively produced by Pituitary World News. Well, hello everyone. Welcome to another session of Live Talk. Uh, today I am I'm here with uh, Dr. Blevins as usual. How are you today? I'm doing very well, thank you. Yeah. How about yourself? I'm doing great. Yes. Thank you. Beautiful day in Lake Tahoe, and I'm sure uh, in San Rafael as well. So It is. So, uh, I had a very interesting start to my day, though. I went to start my clinic at uh, 8.30 this morning, and I couldn't log into the electronic record, nor get access to email, nor get access to the portals I have to go through to, to be able to do things at work. So I spent the first 40 minutes of clinic working with IT to reset my password, first figure out what the problem was. We still don't understand why. No, no. Started the day late, but we we had our our first couple of patients agree to be seen later. Yeah. Well, I know technology and telemedicine, I'm sure that's a... It's a job into itself. <laughs> yeah, I'm hoping not to finish the day with the same technical difficulties that this show will go smoothly. So far, so good. So, yeah. well, I want to welcome everybody that's in the audience today and for, for those of you who will listen to us in the recording. And today we are really pleased to welcome Linda Rio to the Pituitary World News Live Talk Microphones. Linda, if you've been to Pituitary World News, you know she's a frequent contributor on the subject of mental and emotional health, and specifically focus on pituitary disease. And she has been contributing uh, to our publication with her considerable expertise since we founded this publication in 2014. We have many, many uh, articles written by Linda on Pituitary World News. And uh, we urge you to, if you haven't seen them, to go to their website and check and click on mental and emotional health, and you'll find all the articles. But I, I also want to mention that Linda is a, uh, an accomplished author. Uh, her book called The Hormone Factor in Mental Health, Bridging the Mind-Body Gap, focuses on the endocrine imbalances that can cause a whole host of physical and mental health problems. Yet there is currently no definitive source of information that shows how hormones can bridge the gap between mental health and medical health modalities. Uh, this is a book that uh, uh, has um, a bold crossover between the disciplines of mental health and medical health, uh, exploring the understanding of some of the major mental diagnoses uh, belong not only in the field of mental health, but also of medicine. Uh, so it, the, the book covers a, a bunch of, we're going to let Linda uh, tell us about it a little more, but it covers a bunch of patient stories uh, that display the, the issues dealing with uh, delays in diagnosis and misdiagnosis of pituitary disease, something that we talk about all the time. So um, uh, we should also mention that Linda is in private practice in Westlake Village, California, and you can reach her at uh, lindamrio.com or by going to Pituitary World News and clicking on the links. Uh, so uh, welcome, Linda, and thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Our, where are you today? In, in 
Well, first of all, thank you very, very much for inviting me here today. Uh, both Dr. Blevins and Jorge, I feel you both have pioneered so much, uh, not only in the area of, of medicine and, and, and patient advocacy, but in um, giving me pretty much free reign to um, provide some links in terms of the mental health aspect. And you're the only ones I know of that really are embracing the, the aspect of mental health in terms of the pituitary disorders. So um, I'm, I'm ever so thrilled about all of that and very honored to be here. So thank you. And I am coming today. I just got up to Big Bear, California, Big Bear Lake, and it's beautiful up here. Um, my husband and I are up here for the 4th of July kind of weekend, and hopefully everybody else who may be listening or now or listening later will have a lovely 4th and be able to enjoy with family or friends and, and celebrate, you know, kind of a nice, fun summer holiday. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, uh, yeah, it's absolutely a pleasure to have you here live. And I, I should say that um, mental health is one of those subjects that gets a tremendous amount of attention. Uh, we can see it just in the, just by looking at the analytics and the amount of traffic that your articles and other mental health articles get. So there's a tremendous amount of interest uh, in the subject, in understanding it, and in reaching the resources for, for mental health, which is a, a struggle sometimes, as you know. Well, and I'd also say, um, since I first, well, since I was in grad school, um, which, by the way, I'll just mention in grad school, um, I don't think the pituitary was even mentioned. Um, I think it was probably high school biology class, which last time I had heard about the pituitary. Um, and then uh, in a very, very strange way, uh, was introduced to the idea that um, disorders of the pituitary could have something to do. And there was some association with mental health. But um, since all of that time, I am pleased to see that it seems that even certainly in our country and hopefully worldwide, there is a, there seems to be much more open talk about uh, mental health. And I like to focus on the health part, not the, you know, we've, people have been very scared about, Ooh, mental illness. And, and, um, and there's this, you know, we have a long, long history of, of what you can't see and what you you know, you just don't understand. And so therefore it's mystical or, you know, there's a lot of fear based and a lot of myths that goes around with all of that. I, I really like to focus on the idea that we all can use some help once in a while and yeah. um, that we really want to make it okay for people to um, ask for help, talk about things. Sometimes it's just finding ways to talk about things that you're feeling inside and sometimes that alone can be very helpful is just to acknowledge whatever you're, you may be questioning or feeling and saying it out loud. There's an awful lot of uh, just natural healing that it comes, it occurs with that. And hopefully well-trained uh, professionals can provide at least the, the beginnings and sometimes the tools for being able to have not just people individually, but with their family and friends. Um, one yeah. of the things I believe strongly in, and I know I've written for pituitary world news is that disorders of the pituitary certainly affect the individual body 
And Dr. Blevins obviously sees the impact uh, on a daily basis from the patients, but also uh, because we don't live in isolation, we affect, you know, if any, any illness or disease that's of, of any chronicity or, or seriousness is going to have a pretty big impact, certainly on your, if you're married or if you're in a significant relationship, if you're a parent with children, um, but also um, those with pituitary disorders, um, uh, the stories that I heard over the years is what caused me to write, uh, to get the book written that I did write, um, which by the way, I kept looking for somebody around. I kept figuring there was somebody out there who was far more qualified than myself. Uh, and for years I kept looking and begging and trying to find them in the woodwork somewhere and there wasn't any takers. So I guess I just decided to gather and it wasn't just me writing, by the way, Dr. Blevins was ever so kind in um, helping me write the, you know, the initial introductory chapter. And I had many other uh, very profoundly um, educated and trained professionals but also it was the stories that I kept hearing over and over and over again from patients and their family members. They would contact me, they'd email me, I'd talk to them at conferences. And I kept hearing similar stories. I won't say the same, but they were all deeply, profoundly painful to me. Yeah, um, yeah. And a good portion of that was um, it took me five years, 10 years, 15 years to find the right doctor, to get a diagnosis. And um, and even after all the years that I've been doing this, and I'm sure Dr. Blevins probably sees this all the time, there's still people that it takes them a long time to get through the specialist door where then they can be treated um, uh, with respect and with multiple eyes. Certainly I know that at, at UCSF, um, at Pituitary Center of Excellence, you've got multiple um, perspectives in terms of whether it be surgery or endocrinology or radiology or whatever it may be to look at a particular patient so you can treat them from all different angles that, that need to be treated. But that just doesn't exist in every town and, and every place, unfortunately. But um, trying to help people know that it how important it is, and then also to have a really good relationship with your doctor that's mm -hmm. important too. Yeah, we've noticed uh, definitely, um, I think in the last three years, we started noticing it maybe a year or a little longer than before, before COVID. A real interest in, in uh, not just from patients but from institutions to really start talking about mental and emotional mm -hmm. health, and I've seen in the latest conferences that I've been, like the Acromegaly Community Conference recently, there was a, a mental health discussion, a mental health expert who, who made a presentation. And there were, uh, and I, I find some of the support and resources from industry touching on and getting uh, uh, support, at least of resources and information to people in mental health. So that's a, it's great news. And hopefully, um, you know, there'll be more of it. I think there's just a tremendous amount of work to do still, but I think it's a good start. And, and I am seeing some uh, more. Uh, yeah. I am seeing it much more and it's yeah. lovely. I just, and I, and I want to see more professionals out there that can, you know, help, help mo mo people from around, not just the, 
the United States, but the world. I mean, I get contact because of my book. I get contacted from people worldwide asking if I can work with them. And unfortunately, I can't because of uh, license laws. And we can talk about that a little bit. But for example, um, I don't know, maybe six months ago, for whatever reason, I was contacted by a rash of people in the UK uh, looking for help. They had read my book or they also read articles on Pituitary World News. So they find me in multiple different ways. I think I think Pituitary World News has gotten my name out there more than anything. Um, We're happy to do that. Yeah. And then, um, but I do try, I do have resources um, where I can ask and try to then develop people. I, I don't think you're going to find a lot of mental health people that have direct uh, expertise with uh, the pituitary disorders per per se, but I have offered my, you know, I'm willing to consult. I'm willing to help people. And there are folks that are trained in working with um, uh, the mental and emotional aspects of chronic illness or serious illness in general. And I think some of those skills can transfer over in, in being helpful for people that have pituitary uh, disorders. I mean, there's some specifics, uh, quite a few, but, um, but I think finding the right mental health professional is important. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, and, but there are people worldwide that are looking and I think that's awesome. Yeah. I think the, mo- the movement certainly headed in the right direction uh, from a, Physician's perspective, practiced for 30 years now, I can tell you that um, early in my career, uh, maybe the first five or seven years, you, you go through this stage as a new physician or a new practitioner where you do a, a really good job of trying to figure out what's wrong with the patient. And, you know, we, we were all trained in, in a bit of neuropsychiatry for our medical school and residencies and things like that. And, and it's fairly easy to recognize who might have an anxiety disorder or depression or whatever. And um, it was in training, there was an article that came out that said 50% of patients have psychosomatic overlay to their underlying illness, which is uh, probably more than that in, in my experience. But you can recognize who might not really have anything wrong with their endocrine system and maybe needs to see a, a mental health specialist to be treated for depression, anxiety, adjustment disorder, you name it. You know, there are lots of, lots of things that can affect human beings, whether they have an underlying problem or not. <clears throat> but the thing that you encounter, I think we encountered more then, but it's still a problem, is that the moment you tried to address a patient's mental health, they, they, they get upset. There's such a negative stigmata associated with having mental health issues that people simply don't want to consider it. And they become very upset and, and inflamed. And nowadays they'll write, negative reviews on social media. But I think what happens is young physicians get into that situation and they back off. So then they don't address the mental health issues. And then the patients are upset that their mental health issues aren't being addressed. And and to the point that, but yet they don't want them addressed at all the time. And I've seen people spend literally tens of thousands of dollars on all sorts of herbal remedies and other potential cures and are listening to the quacks and the hucksters who think you should do this or that or you know, put a thyroid cream over your neck or whatever, they'll do those things before they'll address the fact that a simple antidepressant might work or simply talking to a therapist may be helpful. Uh, and the 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 uh, the movement, I think, is heading in the right direction where more people are becoming aware, practitioners are becoming aware, 
and uh, and I've had patients who aren't afraid to ask. So I ask. I have people who ask me who should I see, and I send them to you. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I'm happy to continue doing that. So you can't ever retire again. So. <laughs> Um, but it's nice to partner, and, and I can think of at least several cases, one in particular, where the things that I didn't hear from the patient, you heard from the patient related to me, and it altered our therapeutic approach in a positive way. So I think it's important for patients to understand that it doesn't mean something's wrong with you if you need to see a therapist or start a medication for depression. It may be all that you need to sort of help cope with life and the medical illness and things of that nature. Absolutely. And I really appreciate your comments. And I would also say it works in the reverse. Um, those in the mental health profession oftentimes don't really know how to talk, pick up the phone or send an email to, the, to a physician, express some concerns. Sometimes we're hearing patients talk about uh, symptoms that could be physically related, you know, certainly a component that's physically related and they need to let their doctors know, but sometimes they don't, or they don't know how, or they get nervous around their doctors. And so um, we in the mental health profession also need to reach out to doctors and to be able to collaborate. I just think that we just can do a better job of, of um, just, I think it works better for the families, the, the patients to be able to, um, for everybody to put their heads together and um, and to be able to see things from multiple perspectives, you just you just get a richer richer treatment plan, I think, from that. So, an interesting as I hear you discussing this, one of the things that came to mind is I just recently did a podcast with uh, Chris Yedinak, uh, who's a, a PhD nurse, a professor of at the Oregon Health and Science uh, uh, University. And one of the things I asked her is, is, well, if somebody wants, because we were talking about the shortage of endocrine nurses, if somebody wants to be an endocrine nurse, where do they go? And there's very, very few places, actually two in the world, one in the U.S., one in the U.K., I can't remember exactly where, that you can go to be an endocrine nurse. And I'm asking, the, I'll ask you the same question. If you are a mental health um, professional, and you want to uh, learn more or uh, specialize in endocrine and pituitary issues, what do you do? How do you, how do you go about that? Well, I guess I kind of just did it on my own, so I can't yeah. tell you that there's any place specifically. It was partly why I wanted to write the book. I wanted, yeah. I wanted the book is for... Uh, patients and families, but it's also for mental health professionals and nurses and and, and other people that could benefit. Um, there is a branch of, um, uh, I'm a marriage and family therapist, and there's a branch of marriage and family therapy that's called medical family therapy. And there's a few um, schools around the, the country, and it's generally focused on training um, in primary care. But mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, what therapists will do is they train alongside medical residents and they may even go into the consulting room together and then they do case consultations looking at from the medical as well as mental health side, which I think is wonderful. And um, so some people can advertise themselves as medical family therapists and they may work in medical settings. They may work in 
university, uh, hospital settings, uh, doctor's offices sometimes, um, sometimes case managers, or sometimes private practice as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've been trying to nudge those folks along in terms of an awareness of pituitary medicine as maybe another subspecialty within that. And uh, I've gotten some interest in, in, you know, professionals that come to me, ask me questions, uh, consult on cases. So, so I see some uh, bright spots there. Yeah. I'm, gl I'm glad you mentioned that. I think that's not only helpful for therapists who might want to play a role in that arena, but it also helps patients figure out how to find right professional. I remember when I divorced my wife about 15 years ago, <clears throat> I um, felt that I, I needed help navigating the process. So I wanted to see a therapist and I went to the, to the internet and pulled up the American Psychological Association website and put their marriage and family therapist San Francisco. I got 3,500 names. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, how in the world do I, you know, who's a physician at a top university and I like to see people at the top of their field, how in the world do I pick one of these 3,500 people? So I thought, I, I don't know what to do. So I put Catholic therapists in San Francisco. There are only three people. <laughs> <laughs> and one of them, like yourself, has written a lot of books and uh, used to be on a university faculty. And I thought, I'll go see him. He was yeah. retired but still seeing patients, and yeah. I saw him help navigate that divorce, but I was lucky that I was able to go from 3,500 to three. Yeah. Uh, and, and, uh, but pe people need to know how to sort through that process to find. So I think knowing that there are medical, uh, marriage and family therapists, I think it's a really great thing. I didn't know that. Uh, so I'm glad you shared that information with us. And it's one of the things when people, when people come to me and I, I can't help them for they're out of my state area or whatever, I try to give them those keywords in a internet wor world, you know, knowing those keywords can be very helpful in, in narrowing that down. And um, I'm glad you mentioned that because it can be just undaunting. And there's so many specialties within psychology. I mean, there's people that just do research or, or only work with um, prison population. I mean, there's just lots mm -hmm. and lots of specialists. And so you do have to narrow that down a bit. Uh, and then when it comes down to it, I'll tell people, um, you know, have three names of people, maybe somebody who's recommended somebody to you. It helps if you have a neighbor or somebody that makes a recommendation, but it does boil down to, um, I think it's good to have a phone conversation, you know, 10, 15 minutes phone conversation, ask your questions and you'll get a lot of feeling from um, just a vibe talking to somebody on the phone on not only you can usually get their background and their academics on a website, you know, or, or some other search engine, but um, in terms of just being able to ask them, do you, do you even want to work with me? Are you open to learning? One of the things I'll often tell people is you're probably not going to find a therapist um, or a psychologist who knows a lot about pituitary disorders. It's just reality right now. But what you want to do is ask, um, are you willing to learn? Are you willing to consult with my doctor? You know, uh, that's a huge uh, plus on is somebody willing to learn from the patient? Because patients oftentimes know a lot. They know the names of the medications. They know the testing. They know the routines. They know the, the assays, They right? I mean, they're experts. 
they have to be. They've become experts in their own bodies. And I don't think therapists have to know all of that, but they do need to be curious and understand some of the ramifications and the treatments that patients go through, because a lot of that can be challenging, difficult, scary sometimes. Uh, The duration, the waiting. Uh, A lot of times uh, I hear from patients, it's just, it's really hard to wait. Wait for the results from the MRIs. Wait for, oh, you know, I'm sorry. I hear a lot of, uh, my doctor said, now we have to wait six months. You know, we have to wait and see whether the tumor has grown. That's a long six months, you know, to, to go through and try to get to sleep at night when you're worrying about this thing in your head. And, um, I know that Dr. Blevins, you've said that pituitary tumors are not in the brain, but I think for the general public, if it's mm-hmm. inside the skull, it feels like it's in the brain. <laughs> and most people will say, I've got a brain tumor. Or, you know, I mean, a lot of people will say that. And it's scary for people. So it is important for for a therapist to at least understand the basics of the um, physiology and to be able to differentiate between where the location of the pituitary is in relationship to some key parts of the brain. I mean, the brain does inter, interact, right. you know, and there are, and, and it does have something to do with it, even though it may not be specifically brain material. It still feels pretty serious to people. So, um, so I think being able to bridge that medical language along with just regular person language is real helpful in being able to navigate through some of this. And sometimes the therapist can help people get better prepared for their doctor's appointments because a lot of times um, my experience is a lot of um, pituitary patients have high anxiety, whether it's directly or indirectly with the result of um, uh, cortisol or other other factors in the, in the body. Um, just going to talk to the doctor oftentimes raises people's uh, anxiety levels and You can't go in and tell a story about your life, even though it may feel like it's important, you know, that this began way, you know, 10 years ago. And then I saw this doctor and this doctor. Those things are interesting to the patient. And I think therapists can find them interesting, but doctors don't have enough time to be able to spend on the story, at least the full full story. Yeah, sometimes there are hidden nuggets, though, in that full story that can really help the practicing physician yeah. uh, build some bridges with patients. But the time to find those nuggets and the recognition that it is a nugget of gold is sometimes lost uh, in the structure of the way medicine's practiced in this day and age. Yeah, And that's where I think a therapist who you know really knows how to talk to people, probably better than most physicians, uh, can be a very useful member of the healthcare team. Well, we have more time to, to, I mean, we do typically spend 45, 50 minutes with somebody, which is an expansive amount of time compared to the mm-hmm. time allotted for physicians to do, um, maybe not initial sessions, but follow-ups. And so um, trying to help pull those nuggets out. And even um, oftentimes I find that um, patients feel bad about having uh, what what often uh, referred to as brain fog or cognitive deficits, uh, memory problems. 
uh, they, they feel embarrassed that these things are happening. And so being able to help them maybe find some tools of even writing lists with them, helping a family member come in and be an advocate, going to the doctor or at least helping them prepare for a doctor's visit can be helpful. Um, and helping to normalize some of the symptoms that may happen. One of the things I find is people who've had um, uh, oftentimes uh, uh, surgery, it, you know, they come out of the surgery and it, it's considered successful, quote unquote, by the surgeon. But for months and months and months afterwards, their hormones are dysregulated and they're expecting a cure. <laughs> You know, I mean, it yeah. may be medically a cure, but um, there's a whole lot that happens after uh, pituitary surgery, not just in terms of um, recovering physically from the surgery, which is probably minimal in terms of many surgeries, I think. But um, oftentimes it's the years, certainly months, but oftentimes years and sometimes decades it took to them getting to the surgery and getting to the surgeon and, and getting the right treatment that now they're like, they have to figure out who they are. And, and I think that process is complicated by the fact that a lot of physicians don't really fully understand the caveats of the practice of pituitary medicine, which drugs are best, which drug to use in which patient, how do you, how do you optimize therapy for any one of our drugs, steroids, thyroid hormone, growth hormone, sex steroids, for example, yeah. how do you best balance the patient and how do you follow that over time? Yeah. We, we see a lot of patients who say, well, yeah, my doc, my endocrinologist says that growth hormone therapy is experimental. It was approved by the FDA in 1995, I think, or 1996. It's not really experimental, yeah. you know, and yeah. um, maybe that that's, that's off by a couple of years. But the fact of the matter is we've had the ability to use growth hormone for 25 years and for a physician to tell a patient it's experimental when that patient's languishing due to symptoms of growth hormone deficiency is not really good medical care in this day and age. And that's going to lead to not only physical complications, but psych psychological complications as well. Well, and also if they're getting mixed messages from doctors, you know, um, I think that poses a difficulty. Uh, again, it's, it points again, which I always tell anybody that I think may have a, any kind of a serious endocrine disorder, you've got to go to see the specialist. I'm, even if it's a travel a distance, even if it's, you know, you find the money somehow you work it out because in the long run, um, that's that's the person to go to. And, you know, if they've gotten different messages along the way, and I, I've heard lots of people who've had a lot of odd messages. Um, a lot of, I mean, I get uh, patients who've come to me who've seen psychiatrists who've told them this is a medical issue. I don't want to deal with this. Go see a, a medical doctor. And then the medical doctor says, not a specialist, a uh, pituitary specialist, but they say, oh, no, this is mental health. Uh, you've got to go back over there. And they're caught between the two worlds. Mm -hmm. And um, but none of them are specialists in, 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 in and really know much about the whole pituitary. So um, pituitary medicine is highly, highly specialized. Don't, don't you think? I mean, that's my experience. Very, yeah, extremely. 
Yeah. Now, when I think about endocrinology and metabolism being a specialty of internal medicine, I'm an endocrinologist, but I would never want to be an internist and be responsible for the global health of a patient. Now that I've been a pituitary specialist for most of my career, I'm board certified in endocrinology, but I don't have any clue what's going on in the field of diabetes or thyroid cancer or osteoporosis or metabolic syndrome, etc. And I wouldn't dare want to take care of those patients. Um, so when I when I look at it from my perspective, I don't see that endocrinologists really fully understand what I do for a living and the care that I can provide to patients. So they should refer to a specialist and patients should demand to see a pituitary specialist, not not just a general endocrinologist, but really a pituitary specialist. And as you said, even if they have to travel, I think it's worthwhile to at least get a pass. I have, I have pra uh, practicing endocrinologists that I trust implicitly with the patients that I share. Some of them I trained uh, in their fellowships and, I, and I'm comfortable co-managing patients with them and they let me know if there's an issue or a problem. But there are other endocrinologists that focus on diabetes and osteoporosis. So they, they don't know these caveats and they, they uh, really would benefit by partnering with a pituitary specialist. And I think it's well worth a patient's uh, expenses to at least get a consult on, on an occasion just to make sure that they're being managed according to what uh, pituitary practice would do uh, with regards to their pituitary tumor or hormone replacement. I tell most of my patients that if they have something like a broken arm or, you know, where they go to their primary care or their internist and they go, they get it fixed and things are fine. I say, go local, go to the doctor you love, you know, stay local. That's great. But if you have anything, it doesn't, even outside of pituitary, if you have anything that is just not getting better, if it is a diagnosis that's pretty specialized, then you've got to get to a major, major center, hopefully a, a center of excellence for whatever illness there may be. Um, and I just don't think a lot of people realize that they, 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 uh, they want to stay local and uh, save time or money or whatever it may be. And in the long run, it could risk an awful lot of their health and their well-being in general. Yeah, it comes down to rare diseases that aren't rare. You know, if you, if you think of rare diseases should be managed by tertiary medical centers. And, uh, you know, the, the uh, uh, fact of the matter is, if you look at autopsy studies and radiology studies, as many as, a, especially the autopsy studies, as many as 27% of people will have a pituitary tumor found at autopsy. Most of those were not known about during life. Many of those people probably had symptoms and signs. What we know is that if you look at radiology studies and big pituitary tumors, or if you look at the number of people per capita who end up going to have health care for pituitary tumor, it's 18 per 100,000. That's when, a rare when, disease state. Uh, anything anything under 2% is considered a rare disease. So you have a pituitary tumor, you have a rare disorder, and you need to see a specialist for that. Yeah. It, it, the, those statistics were actually one of the things that got me uh, hooked into um, being fascinated with this whole area of mental health because um, I think of rare as being something that maybe once in a lifetime you see and personally, I've met way too many pituitary patients to, for it to feel rare to me. Um, 
but uh, I know that under the definition, uh, but I do also um, feel that based on patients' reports and this, this stu- some of the stories that I, I quote in my book, um, that people have gone for a long time and sometimes, and there are reports in the literature, that the mental health uh, symptoms predate some of the discovery of some of these. And I don't know, if Dr. Blevins, if you have that experience as well, or if you've read those reports, but there are some um, depression, anxiety are the bigger ones, mood fluctuations, um, cognitive problems, some of the memory that I've mentioned, some of those symptoms have been around. And a lot of patients, as they look back, once they have a diagnosis, they go, oh, I wonder, you know, because we don't know how long the pituitary mm-hmm. tumors have been in there, do we? I mean, there's no way of knowing. Yeah, there's no way to know unless you have an old scan. And then sometimes you look back at the old scans and say, oh, there it was. They just they just missed it, you know, yeah. so. But uh, you're right. We see a lot of patients who have uh, neuropsychological symptoms and signs that predate the diagnosis by years. And when they get treated, those problems improve. Uh, sometimes not all the way, especially with Cushing's patients, because you right. have permanent brain injury as a result of having high cortisol levels for an extended period of time. But uh, we can see much of those things improve and, and resolve. Um, we don't fully understand it, though. You know, there's this thing called acromegalic rage that everybody talks about that uh, I see people who would say they're guilty of that. Uh, but I see other patients who've never had anything close to that. So you just don't know if it's a personality type and loss or, or ineffective coping mechanisms that leads to frustration and the rage mm-hmm. or whether it's really a hormonal effect. Some people that can regularly say, this is my hormones. I was not like this before I had the tumor. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but, uh, that's another one where people who have acromegaly will often wonder, oh, the spouse usually will say, is this why he or she is behaving this way? Uh, yeah. I had a case today where so the, the lady new new diagnosis of acromegaly and the, the patient's wife says, is this why he did something bad recently? And I didn't want to ask what doing something bad meant, but, uh, she felt like at least she had something to understand her husband's slip up, you know, after describing him as someone who did something out of character, it might be, you know, he certainly has had some uh, symptoms and signs of uh, low testosterone and depression and mood changes that go along with that. So that could have been related as well. And sometimes I I think a lot of people, um, even if they get a serious diagnosis, just getting a diagnosis, it, it relieves a lot of their their fears and uh, it, it helps put it into a realm of at least understanding and also feeling like somebody believes me. Uh, one of the things I hear from a lot of the patients is they just feel um, they haven't been heard. They haven't been validated. And when they see a doctor that says, okay, this is the, the diagnosis, or they talk to a therapist that, that can say, yeah, this is a real thing. It, there's a tremendous relief in just being validated that somebody believes that you're just not making this up. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a corollary to that, though. I, I, I see on social media, but also in my practice, a fair number of people who, for one reason or another, have learned something about pituitary disorders. And, and maybe it was the 
neuropsychiatric manifestations that led them there, some physical symptoms or signs or what, whatever. And I might be the fifth endocrinologist they'll see thinking they have a pituitary problem, but they don't. And everybody tells them they don't. And you, you the, the, it's, it's almost like their, their mental state regarding this potential diagnosis is such that there's no one in the world will convince them they don't have it. And they yeah. usually leave, leave the practice, so to speak, Fire us is another way to say it. Uh, very unhappy, very disappointed, writing letters of complaint that we couldn't diagnose their problem. And they move on from, I, the, I met one lady who'd seen 14 endocrinologists, major medical centers. Everybody yeah. said she didn't have the disorder and she couldn't accept the fact that I gave an independent opinion and didn't feel that she had the disorder either. So that's the opposite side of it. A lot of people are missed and do have the disease process and have had symptoms and signs for a long time. But some people don't have it at all. And I don't discount those people or say that they're, quote, crazy, no crazier than me, usually, you know. But uh, uh, it, it, it usually is there's something else causing those problems and they need to work with their primary care physician to try to chase down the underlying diagnosis that may not be an endocrine problem at all. Well, and I think it's always, it's one of those facts of life that um, there are still mysteries and there's many things that we don't know. Uh, as brilliant as we may have an awful lot of folks out there, there's still an awful lot to discover. And um, maybe someday there will be an answer for some of these people. But um, yeah, they, they wanting to have a, 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 an answer you want to have the right answer. That's the important thing. That's my point. Yeah, you really want to have the right answer. And if you if you get clearance by several experts that say the same thing, it's probably time to start uh, looking at another area or body organ system to try to figure out what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I could tell you the you know leukemia, constrictive pericarditis, lymphoma, all sorts of diagnoses that I've seen, pernicious anemia. Uh, the list goes on and on of people who thought they had a hormone problem, but uh, just because I listened and made a referral, we were able to get them diagnosed. But so I think that's a, that's critical for people to understand too that uh, not everything ailing them is their hormones, and we don't discount your symptoms or, or write them off. But it's time to sort of find a physician who can help, yeah, or a specialist who can help. So, what advice do you have for patients? I mean, you know, when I think about my practice, um, you know, we're very busy fixing hormone problems and figuring out who needs tumor surgery or radiation or who needs medical therapy and all of that. And um, the the mental health is important, but you know, it's not like I'm I'm not going to prescribe antidepressants or anti anxiety medicines or do counseling myself and things like that. So, what advice do you have for patients when? when they feel like maybe they need those things, what should they do? How should they approach the subject with their physician to be able to get an appropriate referral to either a psychologist or a psychiatrist or someone who can sort of co-manage and address some of the other issues? Well, I think, first of all, I think just asking, you know, just saying, do you know of any good therapists or psychiatrists uh, in the area? Do you have it? And I really love it when doctors have a, uh, a, a nice cadre of, of folks that you can refer to. It always feels good when you have somebody you can have confidence in. Um, and, um, and so I think that's important is to, to know that it's okay to just say, I, I do need some additional help. And, um, 
And if the doctor doesn't, then um, I'm available to ask. Obviously, I can try to point people in the right direction. Um, I think I've written some articles on Pituitary World News that address some of that. If not, maybe I should yes. write another one. <laughs> um, I actually refer patients to our website to to read the things that you've written. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Sort of get oriented to the notion of the fact that they may need to see a therapist. And and some of the articles are written so that people have at least a starting place. Maybe they have some of the the ideas, or maybe they even take the articles and and um, and and go through those and get some ideas about um, you know is this something that I that I should go and and get some help. I think um, also uh, if in looking at psychiatric medications, I think it's really important for uh, to understand. A lot of people don't understand the different kinds of mental health pr- practitioners. Uh, most people think of psychiatrist, and that's a medical doctor that can pr- that. Pr- can prescribe medication. Um, I'm a therapist, a marriage and family therapist, and and, uh, I don't prescribe medication, but I can refer people to um, uh, a physician, a psychiatrist who might, and who hopefully then at least connects with the endocrinologist in this case, if it's a pituitary disorder, so that the endocrinologist and the psychiatrist can collaborate in terms of medications, because I think that's really important to at least be informed and to close that loop. You want all your practitioners to at least know about each other, to know that they exist. It doesn't mean they're all going to sit in one room together and and, uh, spend hours talking about you, um, but they do need to at least have a general idea because you don't want one person just prescribing one thing over here and the other one not knowing. So that's really important. Um, in terms of, you know, um, and then there's psychologists and there's many, many different kinds of psychologists. Sometimes uh, they can perform some testing, neuropsych testing. Uh, if there's cognitive problems, uh, memory problems, whatever, that can help tease out. Um, if it isn't a, a, a pituitary issue, maybe it's something else that could be teased out through a testing process, and that could be very helpful. Um, if there's um, someone that's having problems uh, with their workplace, I've talked to many pituitary patients who had difficulties maintaining their job, being able to stay focused at their job, um, having cognitive difficulties, sometimes anger outbursts, sometimes mood dif- difficulties that do affect the workplace. And uh, sometimes they have to maybe work with somebody to think about maybe they have to find a different kind of workplace, something that may work better for their current stage of life and their physical functioning. And there are people that can specialize in helping them know what their skills are, what their present skill level was, what their capacity is. Because um, sometimes people have to face that their life has changed. You know, Mm -hmm. they have this thing that has happened to them, uh, either a tumor or some other kind of uh, issue with the pituitary, the endocrine system. And oftentimes they want their former life back. And sometimes that former life is 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Well, um, there's a grieving process that goes through on, on being able to realize that that's not going to happen and how to move forward, um, how to be able to grieve uh, what's been lost, 
uh, physically, mentally, emotionally, whatever that may be, and then to be able to have a path forward to have a quality of life as best as possible, uh, given your current circumstances. And um, I think having somebody go through that process with you can be very helpful. Yeah. I was going to mention that there are, um, in, in many of the articles uh, that you've written for us and you've published, Linda, there are resources, general resources for where people can go learn about and get more information on uh, mental health. I think what's missing is just a resources like, like uh, Dr. Blevins was discussing, you know, who are the specialists, you know, where they, yeah. where they can go. That, that I think would be great to, to, uh, to put together. I, I should say that um, there's an article that you wrote, which is on the, typically it's in our most popular articles, uh, which is, is a connection. Uh, let's see, I can't remember exactly the title, but it, it's uh, pituitary disorders and mental health. Is mental health is there a connection? That uh, that article is probably in the top five of all of the articles that we've ever published. Over six hundred articles that we published, and it every day has ten or fifteen uh, hits on it. So. You, it just tells you, it just shows you the amount of, of uh, pent up need for information uh, that there and is. And that people are searching, so, you know, and, it, and it doesn't mean yeah. that they're all going to be diagnosed with a pituitary disorder, of no, course, no, but, no, but, yeah. but at least that they're searching. Yes. The interest. Yeah. The yeah. Interest, yeah. And I, yeah. before we leave, I do want to mention, um, I'm going to use the word sex because I think that it's an important aspect of mental yeah. health and relationships. And it's one that um, oftentimes people are, have a difficulty talking to their physician about, uh, even bringing up the, the issue that their performance may be lacking or their spouse's performance, or there may be some difficulties. And um, I do, doctors are trained, they know the word, they know, so, you know, it's not going to, to be embarrassing to the doctor, but I do encourage people to be able to feel free that they can ask somebody and, and the right therapist can be helpful in, we hear that, you know, we deal with those things all the time and we can try to help people find the right words to talk to your spouse about or to bring out issues and to use words that sometimes are difficult. They just may not even yeah. be used to based on their upbringing or whatever, but we try to normalize those things and to be able to have people be able to discuss it and to help find out is this an emotional issue or is it a physical issue or maybe a little bit of both? Because mm -hmm. sometimes it could be, you know, the pituitary yeah. does have uh, just a little something to do with, with sexual functioning. Um, but there's also the emotional piece as well. And those two things kind of sometimes have to be teased out as far as, um, you know, what, what places, what importance uh, needs to be primary or secondary. So well, I I totally agree, and I think that that's something that most people would be very interested in discussing and getting uh, you know practical solutions for or or uh, you know information. That might be a very interesting uh, roundtable discussion that we can program for uh, later. You know, and live talk uh, a discussion about sex and the pituitary and all of that. Uh, interesting. Um, 
subjects. Yeah, it's a great yeah. idea. It yeah. certainly is a very important aspect of people's lives. And I, I, I would venture the guess that if you looked at my career, I've probably done more counseling and therapy or psychological therapy, if you will, with people about sexual matters than I have with about, say, depression or anxiety. It's just it's what's on people's mind. It affects their lives every day. Yeah. And, uh, and, a, and a good, I think, physician learns to be non-judgmental and to be helpful and be skilled in navigating those arenas uh, or that arena and those issues with a patient and, uh, and a partner. But I think the tools to help people, would, I think, interesting, the tools to help people bring these things up in a way that it's okay in a setting that may be really yeah. helpful for them. Yeah, yeah there's so many different uh, blocks to that, cultural, familial, religious, sure. etc. And uh, And I think it's really up to the physician that if it's not discussed by the patient to initiate that discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, as, I, as I had to with my patient today, I, I felt like there was a, probably issues that he wouldn't discuss. I had to bring it up. I was the one that started the conversation and then we, we learned more uh, and can, can do some things to be helpful. Uh, so I think that that's uh, oftentimes it's hard for patients to bring it up and they probably figure at the end of the visit, if the doctor didn't bring it up, well, he must not have thought it was important because he didn't discuss it. And that's never true. Some physicians are just busy or maybe not comfortable discussing, but it's always worth bringing those things up. And like you said, we're all we're trained to be able to be not non-judgmental, to be able to listen. We've heard probably most things, and um, and so we we're the ones. All the practitioners are there to kind of be that safe place to be able to help people find the best quality of life they can have, and exactly. uh, and to be able. But we can't read minds, you know. In spite of the fact that a lot of people think. I can read a mind. It's, it's it's not true. I'm lucky sometimes, you know, but, but, uh, so not possible uh, yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That term, a shrink, you know, being able to be able to shrink. Well, that doesn't exist, but I've we, never understood why that term was applied. In the I don't place. either. I'm not sure either. Because <laughs> usually mental health profess- professionals expand that they're expansive, not shrinking yeah. things. They, expand the mind and the thoughts and consciousness and understanding that's that's what i hope that we're doing that's for sure that's a very good question now i'm gonna have to go find out what it is why why did that term is being used (laughs) so we can we publish it but it you know it's a neg i think it has a negative connotation just like having mental illness and you know i want my patients to understand i don't think it's a negative connotation to have a uh you know whether you want to call it a a medical problem causing psychiatric problems or psychiatric problem causing overlays with your, your medical problems. But I was trained in medicine and recognized the value of, of uh, mental health professionals in, in uh, managing patients or, or co-managing with us. And when I was in my uh, faculty position at Emory University, there was a huge medical psychiatry practice where we probably saw three consults on their inpatient service every day. So I learned to work with the professionals early on, and they certainly were very much in tune with the fact that uh, pituitary disorders, because mostly what they asked me to see, uh, were common in people who had uh, psychiatric problems. And uh, if you could resolve those things, sometimes you would... Uh, see a great overall improvement and better efficacy of the drugs they were using in their field. 
Well, the other thing to keep in mind is uh, that I always have to keep in mind is many people who come through our doors have long histories. And um, sometimes those histories are not even really fully known to them. Um, and uh, the, the amount, immense amount of childhood trauma that has occurred for people that either they're very aware of or has been kind of pushed back um, has an effect. It has an effect on their ability to even just believe in themselves um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and be able to feel worthy. And so um, oftentimes people that are coming through our doors are, are coming in with a lot of um, negative experiences in their lives, scary experiences, sometimes even with medical professionals who have mm -hmm. dismissed them, you know, long, long ago or uh, failed to ask the questions that should have been asked. And so um, I think it takes a tremendous amount of courage for people to seek help. Um, yeah, I agree. And, you know, and, and sort of what you're alluding to is that people come to you and they don't trust the system or the, or the provider, and that's going to lead to a block in communication. Yeah. A doctor patient relationship or a provider patient relationship is uh, one of the pillars of the foundation of that relationship is trust communication uh, and, and uh, you know, shared interests, etc. But um, if if someone has had a childhood that led to uh, erosion or an inability to recognize or establish trust, they're going to have problems. I had one one patient come to me and she say, well, my father was an alcoholic, so you can imagine what my life must be like, and I'm not going to trust anybody until I get to know them because uh, she was fearful of, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. of, uh, of a relationship breaking down and the abuse that came out of that. And there is some research that sh shows, uh, you know, that er particularly early childhood trauma um, does affect physical bodies years down the road. You know, the ACEs study that, that was done, mm -hmm. huge, huge uh, ACEs study uh, by Kaiser uh, Perm Permanente showed um, sequelae years down the road to, to uh, illnesses, many different kinds of illnesses. The uh, impact emotionally on us does get felt in the body um, in a variety of different ways. And uh, there's even some, I think it was Dr. Sobrino in Portugal who did a study of alcoholic uh, uh, people that had uh, either an absent father or an alcoholic father and a significantly greater number who had a, uh, I think it was prolactinoma in this particular case. Mm -hmm. Um, interesting study, um, kind of just relating the mental, emotional, and and the later development of pituitary. Of course, we don't know exactly what causes. We don't have any direct lines between causality. A lot of people want to know why did I get this. I mean, probably most illnesses, people want to know well, why me. Why yeah. did I get this? And unfortunately, yeah, we don't always know. Yeah. Well, I I can't believe that this hour has flown by. I can't believe that it's been an hour. It's been such a fascinating discussion to listen to you two uh, discuss these these issues, particularly with, with specific patients and cases. It's been wonderful. So I uh, I don't know if Dr. Blenders, you have any closing remarks, but I want to thank Linda and definitely uh, we're going to, we're going to have more of these discussions. Uh, and I think that, I think that, uh, uh, sex idea sounds ter ter terrific to discuss with uh, with maybe find a 
one or two more experts and have a, a roundtable live discussion it would be wonderful so yeah it's a great idea but uh, linda we really appreciate your participation and i'm sure we're going to have you back <laughs> so get used to us knocking on your door for either articles or joining our radio show or podcasts i love really... getting together with you guys so uh and and if you're ever doing one of those conferences again that that's great fun if we can ever that you did one just right before the pandemic and then and then, yeah, we, exactly. then we know what happened with yeah. that so you yeah know, but it's always nice what? for patients also to see one another live and to be able to connect so maybe yeah, one of those exactly. days we'll get that going too i hope so one i hope so one of these days the problem is i hear you know they had the diabetes meeting recently and they haven't reported it but people who have attended told me there's a big COVID outbreak as a result of that and there was an acromegaly patient meeting in a COVID outbreak as a result of that. So it's just, I'm not sure it's safe to come out of our houses yet. Not yet. So we, we, we want to, but it's probably safe to go out, but not to congregate in a, in a large group, especially indoors. So, but one of these days we will do that. Uh, where Jorge and I have been thinking about using this platform of the radio show where we can have as many participants or speakers or invited guests as, as possible. To, to maybe have our next patient meeting through this platform. So everybody will be on video and it should it should be an interesting, uh, uh, better than the Zoom we did the last time, but an interesting uh, way of taking a look at it. We'll see. Great. Well, thanks so much for joining us and, and thank you for listening, everybody. We'll see you next week at 3 p.m. next Thursday. All right. Take care, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. You have been listening to Live Talk, an exclusive production from Pituitary World News. Pituitary World News is a nonprofit organization supported by a variety of organizations, foundations, and from people like you. We encourage you to participate by joining us to spread the word about pituitary disease. And if you'd like to donate, please go to pituitaryworldnews.org and click on the Donate button. Thank you, and thank you for listening.